All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn in them with me to Genesis chapter 34 this morning. Genesis chapter 34. This is one of the very lowest points of the entire book of Genesis. This is not an easy chapter to simply read, let alone to study in depth together. Uh, But friends, we do believe that God has good in store for us even here in Genesis 34. And so we don't want to just skip over it this morning. We want to preach exegetically through it just like we do for the rest of the Scriptures. And so uh, please give your attention with me to the entirety of this chapter as we read it together. The Defiling of Dinah. Now Dinah was the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. She went out to see the women of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take your daughters for yourselves. We shall dwell, you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and I get a gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters." Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. 
And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is The Want of Justice. The Want of Justice. And it is titled so because Genesis 34 has a profound lack of justice within it. In this chapter, we see the want of justice in so many ways. We, we see the want of justice in Shechem's horrific sin against Dinah. We, we see the want of justice in Jacob's passivity in the face of the great evil done against his daughter. And we see the want of justice in the evil and in the defiling pursuit of vengeance from Simeon and Levi. There, there's no justice in this chapter. And, and church, there is no justice in this chapter because there is no God in this chapter. You, you do not see a single mention of God in these 31 verses. There's, there's an utter lack of the Lord here. And then the lack of his presence and the lack of his voice gives us a very clear, very profound, very dramatic picture of what the human pursuit of justice in this world looks like when God is left out of the picture. Life without God. Our pursuit of justice without God is a very ugly thing. Genesis 34 leaves us as, as the reader wanting, needing, longing for help in the pursuit of justice in this world. But by the time we're done reading these verses, no one in this story is seen as righteous or as just. Everyone is defiled either by their own sin or by someone else's sin. And it just makes us want to cry out, doesn't it? It makes us want to cry out, where can we find true justice in this world? And church, this, this cry for justice is not just in this text. No, this cry for justice is the cry of all of our hearts and really the cry of the entire world on, on almost a daily basis. We see the world and the church today looking for justice all the time. The Me Too movement, the existence of poverty, the current race relations conversation, all of the social justice issues reflect the longing of all of our hearts to know where we can find true justice. And as we 
cry for that justice, it's also very clear that people are searching and pursuing justice in all kinds of ways, some of them good, some of them very bad. But friends, the effect, really really the primary purpose of this chapter in Genesis is to cause us to look to God. We are to consider how He really is the only one in our lives who can bring about full and complete righteous justice in this world. He is the God of righteousness. He is the God of justice. Folks, the main idea for our message this morning is simply this. Present injustice makes us long for future justice. And we have four points to consider together this morning. Point number one, sinful injustice. Point number two, leadership failure. Point number three, aimless vengeance. And point number four, gospel hope. Those are our four points. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, sinful injustice. Look at verses one and two again with me. It says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. This is evil. This is evil. This is not just another painful, this is just another painful reminder of the brokenness of this world because of sin. Ever since Genesis 3, when when Eve saw and seized the fruit of the tree, ever since then we have seen this brokenness and this evil on display over and over again. Friends, what happens here is not just a guy being a guy. This is not just a guy expressing his God-given sexual desires in an immature way. No, this is a crime. This is rape. This is a man using his position and physical power to force himself sexually upon a woman, even upon a young girl. It's so clear that this was not consensual in, every way, in any way. Look at the words used to describe this situation. Verse 2, he, he seized her. That, that speaks of violence and, and forcefulness. Verse 2 says that he lay with her. In Hebrew, it actually says he laid her rather than the more passive form, he lay with her. No, he laid her. He forced her. And then it says he humiliated her. This is evil. And it is deeply sorrowful to read. In this text, a real-life story, we see a young woman's innocence violently stolen away from her. Church, our hearts should break when we read this together. This is sexual abuse. This is sexual assault. Church, as the people of God, we need to to mourn and we need to lament and grieve over the presence of this kind of evil in our world. Sexual abuse, sexual assault, and mistreatment, they're real. And as God's people, we should mourn over these things. Listen, Because of how common sexual abuse is in our day, we are oftentimes, sadly, not surprised when we hear about it. But church, we must never stop grieving over it because of how common it is. Because of how common it is, I think that we can at times downplay the severity of it. 
Because of things like the Me Too movement and some of our concerns at times that that groundless accusations are going to be thrown out and that good men are going to be falsely accused, because of that we can at times hear of abuse and downplay it. We could try to explain it away or excuse it or even at times to our shame put the blame for it on the woman for acting in a certain way. But church, we must not do that. We must care about this. We must grieve over this. We must hate this. Sinful abuse and mistreatment should always make our hearts deeply sorrowful in response. Don't let the culture, which endlessly just discusses these topics and stories, don't let it ever steal your ability to simply mourn and lament that the sin of injustice exists in this world. Women truly are sexually abused and raped. This is a fact, and it happens a lot, and we should grieve over it. Child abuse is a real thing, and it happens a lot, and as the church, we should not turn a blind eye to it. We must grieve over it. Sex trafficking is a real thing, and the church should find ways to fight against it. And listen, it's not just sexual sins where we see sinful injustice. There are many areas that we see it. Poverty is a real thing. That the presence of poverty throughout the world and the, the, the lack of action on many people's part or the, the seeming total indifference of many to do anything about it, that's a sinful injustice. Tim, Tim Keller says that, that injustice in this world is not just all of the evil that is done, it is also all of the good that is not done for those who are in need. Or how about the hate and the prejudice all around us? These are real things. Racism does exist. People truly are mistreated because of the color of their skin. Now, now maybe racism does not exist in all of the ways that we are being led to believe that it does. Probably not. But it absolutely does exist at times. And we should grieve over it whenever we hear of it, whenever we see a new example of it. And it needs to be said as well that there is injustice in the false accusations that are being made against individuals or against whole groups of people. People's lives, whole families are destroyed or canceled over wrongful accusations, and that should grieve us as well. Church, there is plenty of sinful injustice to go around. And the point here is that as Christians who are made by God to love what is good and right and true and beautiful and just, we should hate sinful injustice in all its forms. We should grieve deeply over another human being who is wonderfully, beautifully made in the image of God being sinned against in any of these ways. It should pierce our hearts and make us weep before God. Christian, stand for truth. Stand for biblical justice, and at times that may mean wisely and patiently waiting for facts to come out about a narrative. But Christian, never become so skeptical or never be so patient that you lose the ability to simply mourn over what is happening to other people. If if we would be biblical Christians, we must not lose the ability to weep with those who weep. We must not stop being broken over sinful abuse and injustice and mistreatment in this world. Point number one is simply the reality of sinful injustice. Point number two is leadership failure. Verses one to four leave us longing for justice. What is going to happen? 
Who is going to defend Dinah? Who will take action against this injustice? Someone must stand up. Someone must act against this sin. And when we read in verse 5 that Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter, the expectation in verse 5 is that there will be immediate retaliation, right? Jacob, we have learned, is a man of action. He, he's the one, when he first encountered his wife, moved that huge rock over the stone that multiple men couldn't move. He, he's the one who two chapters ago wrestled with God himself. He's a man of action. Certainly, he's going to rise up and defend his daughter Dinah. But look at what happens next. It says in verse 5 that Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. The man of action holds his peace in the face of this? Are are you kidding? You know, some people might say that Jacob held his peace because he was waiting for the help of his sons to come and take action on his behalf, but that does not seem to be the case. Jacob seems to be indifferent to the plight of his daughter, and he just lets his sons hear about it when they hear about it, and handle the situation however they want to handle of it because she is their sister. Almost like he doesn't even consider her to be his daughter. J- Jacob's a man of action, and so we should expect him to take immediate action against the sin against Dinah because even as, as Hamor does for Shechem, there's, there's a contrast made between these two fathers. Hamor acts on behalf of his son. Jacob does not act on behalf of his daughter. Jacob abdicates. He lets others handle the situation. And throughout the rest of the story, Hamor and Shechem don't even talk to Jacob, who is the leader of the family. They have the conversation with Jacob's sons. Oh, friends, the old Jacob is rearing his ugly head. God has done great things in Jacob's life, but that does not mean that Jacob is now perfect. No, indwelling sin remains, and we can see the ugliness of it here. We can see the ugliness of Jacob's sin in a number of different ways. First of all, we see the the failure to obey. We, We need to notice something very specific about the context that this story happens in. In the context, Jacob is supposed to be returning to the land of his fathers. Back in chapter 31, God had told Jacob to return to Bethel. But now look back at last week's text, chapter 33, verses 8 to 12. It says that Jacob never went all the way to Bethel. He pulls up short. He sets up camp in Shechem. There's direct disobedience to God's word here. And the effect of Jacob's failure to obey is significant. It's his disobedience that puts his family and his daughter Dinah in particular in a place of danger and vulnerability. Church, one of the greatest leadership failures in our day is the lack of care for obedience and holiness before God. Many pastors love to lead. They love to make the big decisions. They love to be out in front, but they do not pay close attention to the sinful tendencies of their own hearts. Obedience doesn't matter to them. We need leaders. We need pastors who don't just want to lead publicly and be in the spotlight, but who care about godly obedience privately as well. 
Let me encourage you to pray for your leaders, to pray for your pastors to be men who care about obedience. Second of all, we see a failure in Jacob's leadership as a a failure of courage. Because Jacob settled in a foreign land, it's it's very clear that he's, he's preoccupied by his safety in that land. And so down in verse 30, Jacob's not concerned at all about the injustice that has been done by his son. He doesn't even seem to care that Simeon and Levi have used the the holy sign of circumcision in such an ungodly and unjust way. No, he just cares about whether his family is in danger or not. This is a failure of courage on Jacob's part. And sadly, today, many leaders and pastors fail in exactly the same way. Leaders often do not take action against injustice because they are too concerned about what people might say or think of them. How will people respond if we take that stance? Will people leave our church? And so in the face of scandal in the church, many leaders go into self-preservation mode and they try to protect their own rather than prayerfully considering how they can stand against that injustice and fight for holiness. Friends, let me encourage you to pray that your leaders would be courageous men. Finally, we see a failure of leadership in that Jacob failed to love. Dinah, I can hardly even say it, Dinah was Jacob's daughter. His daughter. Nothing more should need to be said here. A father should care about his daughter. He should take action to defend and to fight for his daughter. But as it says in verse 5, Jacob held his peace. Are you kidding? What, what father here would not run out of that house to handle that situation in some way? Why? Well, because it would seem that he did not love her. Did you notice how in verse 1, it highlights that Dinah was the daughter of Leah? Why highlight that fact? Well, because we know that Leah is Jacob's least favorite wife. He strongly prefers Rachel and, and he prefers Rachel's children. We're going to see very soon in the story the, the favoritism and preference that he has towards Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And so it seems very likely here that Jacob was, was somewhat indifferent to Dinah's fate. Why? Let's just let her brothers handle that situation. He cared little about her. The the, the lack of love on Jacob's part led him to passivity in leadership. It led him towards inactivity in the face of injustice. He had a prejudice away from Dinah, and it led him to do little for Dinah. Rather than seeing her as his own daughter and as a young woman made in the image of God who needed to be defended, he minimizes her value and does nothing. And church, this is so important to consider for today's leaders as well particularly in the current climate, it would seem that there are many leaders who rather being compelled by love, love that would lead to action, many leaders are preoccupied by by other parts of the conversation that keep them from simply loving those who need to be loved and defending those that need to be defended. Many, many leaders can be more, more concerned about the, the wrong narratives that are being shared or the wrong perspectives or the, the secular ideologies that are creeping into the church, which I share concern about all of that. 
But if we let the concern about those things keep us from simply loving those who need to be loved, those who are right in front of us, and defending those that need to be defended, then we have a failure of love and a failure of leadership. This is the failure of leadership on Jacob's part. He has failed to obey, he has failed to be courageous, and he has failed to love. Friends, please pray for your leaders. But before we even move on to our third point, let me just pause here and ask a question. Have you experienced a failure of leadership in your life? Has someone who was supposed to love and defend you and protect you failed to do so? Has someone who was supposed to be an example of godliness and holiness actually been a source of pain and sorrow and sin? And has that maybe even happened within the church? Sadly, this is all too common. I I heard a very wise pastor friend just this past week say that oftentimes we like to say that the church is the dearest place on earth to us. And it is. And I hope we can all say that. But he said we should also be aware that for a lot of people, the church is the place of deepest disappointment as well. Have you been disappointed by the church? Have you been grievously sinned against? First of all, let me me say this. If you have been wrongfully hurt by by a leader or by someone in your life who was supposed to love you and protect you, it needs to be said to you this morning that that person is not an accurate reflection of God's heart for you. Leaders and pastors and parents are supposed to be a reflection of God's goodness towards you. But sadly, sometimes they're not. But you need to know that God still cares deeply for you. You are his chosen child, his precious child, and he is eager to take action on your behalf. He is eager to stand up. He will not wait by. He is eager to defend you. He sees the torment that you have gone through, and as you have tried to make sense of all of the confusion and all of the difficult circumstances, he wants to meet you there. Second of all, let me say that the part of the point of this entire chapter is to point you beyond human leadership. Now that is not to say that human leaders are not important. No, friends, please listen. You need leadership. Specifically, you need church leadership even with all of our many weaknesses. Please don't give up on the church or on church leadership if you have been hurt. As long as the leaders that you are following are humble men who are seeking to follow Jesus and are not using their authority to wrongfully manipulate or abuse church members, they can and should be followed. But the point here is to still point you beyond even those faithful church leaders to the God who is sovereign and just over all leaders. Your leaders are going to fail you. Friends, I hate to say it, it's only a matter of time before I fail you in some way. The church is a broken place and the leaders are no exception to that. But our God is sovereign over even their weakness. And he's able to use them despite their weakness and their many flaws. That brings us to our third point. Point number three. Aimless vengeance. We want Jacob to take action. Stand up, man. Do something. But he doesn't. There's a leadership void. 
And so in verse 7, when, when Jacob's sons come in from the field and hear about what has happened, it says that they were very indignant and very angry, and they are more than ready to bring leadership to the situation. They're ready to go. The only question is whether the leadership that they bring to the situation is going to be righteous leadership or unrighteous leadership. And the answer to that question is quickly seen to be that it's unrighteous leadership. Their response to the leadership failures of, of Jacob will ultimately no, be no better than the leadership of their passive father, Jacob. In, in verses 8 to 12, Hamor and Shechem seek to, to convince the sons of Jacob to give them Dinah and to intermarry with them. They, they propose this great idea. Verse 12 says, Shechem says, he's willing to give anything as a bride price. Just give me your daughter. And the sons of Jacob take advantage of this moment. Verse 13, look at it. It says that they answered them deceitfully. It says it right off the bat. So, so we know immediately that their intentions, their motives are not pure. They, they are seeking vengeance, not justice. And then in verses 13 to 29, we see what happens in detail. They, they respond to Hamer's request to intermarry by saying, we can only intermarry with you if you have all of your men circumcised like we are. Church, they take the sign of the covenant, a holy and sacred sign before them and God, and they use it in their unjust pursuit of vengeance. Now Shechem, who must have really wanted to marry Dinah, says yes to their proposal, which is crazy. He says, sure, me and all the men will be circumcised. And verse 24 says that every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Their entire city is laid low by having been circumcised. Verse 25, on the third day when they were sore. Yup. And on the third day after this operation, still in immense pain from this operation, and it says while feeling secure. While not expecting any attacks, certainly not expecting a massacre, Verse 25 says, on the third day, while they were still sore, Simeon and Levi took their swords and came against the city and killed all the males. All of them. They killed Shechem and Hamor and rescued Dinah from the house, but they killed all of the men as well. All of the sons of Jacob then come and they plunder the city. They take everything. Look at verse 29. They take their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Friends, this is horrible. The rescue of Dinah is a good thing, but what they do here is horrific. Even in the secular perspective, this is seen as horrific. There would have been no nation around them said, yeah, that's an appropriate way to act in the face of injustice. Jacob says in verse 30, you've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Anyone, whether godly or ungodly, is going to say this is no way to handle the situation. And friends, there are important lessons of leadership for us today here as well. I think that it's important to see first some of the right motivation behind what Simeon and Levi did. It is very clear, even from the narrator's perspective, that what Shechem did to Dinah should not have been done. It was evil. Action needed to be taken. So, so they step into the leadership void left by their passive and prejudiced father, and they take action. 
And they take action in a way that it seems is motivated by things that were lacking in Jacob. Jacob failed to love Dinah. Dinah was the daughter of Jacob's least favorite wife, Leah. But then verse 25 seems to highlight the opposite for Simeon and Levi. It mentions them as Dinah's brother, brothers and her as their sister. These two men, they see the one that Jacob failed to see. They love the one that Jacob failed to love. They stand in defense for the one that Jacob failed to defend. And folks, this is reflected in our pursuit of justice in our day as well. Right When so many people fail to take action against injustice like Jacob did, when so many Christians turn a blind eye to the, to the want of justice in this world, in whatever area that may be, there are wonderfully always people who see those who are left behind and who want to take action. There are always those who love those that are hurting and who want to defend and protect those that need to be defended, and that is so good. But the question remains as to how to do it best. And I think that Simeon and Levi give us a very poignant example of, how, of how, how we pursue justice matters greatly. And how while it is immensely important to pursue justice, our pursuit of justice can at times be done in a very godless and deeply sinful way. Their massacre of the men of Shechem, it's shameful. That the want of justice turned into a want of vengeance and their actions far exceeded the sin that was originally committed. Justice needed to come, absolutely. Action needed to be taken. But the chaos and the lack of restraint on their part led to even greater evil than what we began with. Friends, at times, the pursuit of justice in our day can feel a lot more like vengeance than true justice. And we have to be very careful about this because this wrongful pursuit of justice can defile many people and it can defile the whole church. Many people in our culture and in the church can can just want justice so badly that they become comfortable with anything that feels like action being taken on their part or on the part of others. And so they jump behind anything that seems like it's, it's moving in the right direction. And so they retweet that tweet, or they share that post, or they adopt that ideology, or that secular perspective, rather than the biblical foundation that they need. And it doesn't lead to greater justice, it actually leads to greater chaos. It leads to feelings of vengeance because people are hurt by it, and and people in groups are canceled by it, and it doesn't necessarily get us any closer to God's idea of righteousness and justice. They, They are filling the leadership void but not necessarily in a helpful or godly way. And friends, the consequence of us pursuing justice or vengeance apart from godly wisdom is very dangerous. It leads to destruction. The consequences for Levi and Simeon's sins, it's not just in this moment. It is long-lasting. We're going to see it referenced again in Genesis chapter 50. It's a big deal. It is incredibly dishonoring to God and defiling to God's people. It has long-lasting implications. Church, we must find a better way. Sinful injustice is real. We see it everywhere in this world. But passive indifference like Jacob's will not do. Action needs to be taken. But we must not fill the leadership void with aimless vengeance or with ideologies that are not biblical. We must find a better 
way. And that brings us to our fourth and to our final point this morning. Point number four, gospel hope. We are quickly running out of time here, my friends. But we need to consider our our main idea again together. The main idea of our message today is that present injustice makes us long for future justice. And and that really is the point of this text. Listen, there's no hidden verse here, no, no hidden phrase here that I can point to and say, well, actually, in the deep Hebrew meaning of that, it means everything turned out okay. It's all going to be good. It's not here. It doesn't exist. The way this is written is intended to leave us as the readers with nothing to cling to. We are supposed to be left wanting and longing for a solution from from somewhere else. The solution is not present right away. So the question is, where are we going to turn? What are we going to do? Well, friends, I think that we are supposed to turn and we are supposed to ask the question, how can God use such great evil to accomplish his great purposes? What what evidence do we have that God can use the evil and injustice of this world to bring about good in our lives and in the lives who are treated so unfairly? And actually, actually, friends, if there is anything within this text itself that gives us hope, it's very hard to see, but it could be the fact that God is able to use even gross sinfulness to accomplish and to protect his ultimate purposes. And so Jacob had wrongfully made his camp near to Shechem. And it was very likely only a matter of time before his sons and daughters started to intermarry with the people of the land. And God's plan for his chosen people Israel would have changed and been defiled. And so we do see some hope in the text in that God uses even the gross evil of sin in this world to further his purposes. Simeon and Levi should never have done what they did. But one of the indirect effects of their sin was that God's plan was protected and furthered because Jacob and his family were forced to go on to Bethel. We see that in the very next verse, 35 verse 1. And we see in that that God's sovereignty, his control over all things can even use gross injustice in order to promote and to further his righteous justice for his people. Friends, listen, we know that this is true. We know that he is able to do this because there's another place in Scripture where we see something very similar to the injustice of this story. There's another place in Scripture where we see great violence done against one who did not deserve it. Another place in Scripture where someone dies at the hands of angry and vengeful men. It's at the cross. It's at the cross, that that cruel instrument of torture and death. The the Romans certainly did not create the cross as a way to further God's plan of redemption or to ultimately protect his people. No, they created it in order to torture people. But yet, it is on that cruel cross that God himself died in our place. The greatest injustice that has ever occurred in this world happened on that cross. The perfect and pure and holy God dies at the hands of violent and vengeful men. See, There's a leadership void. There's a leadership void in us and in our relationship with God. There were injustices that had been done, namely our own sin. 
And so even as we read this story, I, I think that many of us want to identify first with those that are hurt in this story unjustly, and we want to cry out for justice that comes against the injustices that have been done against us. But friends, listen, Scripture might say a little bit differently for you this morning. He might say a little differently for me this morning. Scripture might put you and I in the place of, of Shechem. Or he might put us in the place of the passive Jacob or in the vengeful Simeon and Levi. We, in our sin before God, are not first those that need to be defended. We are forced first those that need justice to come against our many sins, against our injustices before a holy God. We are first criminals. And we are the ones who have done wrong. We are the offending party. And there is a leadership void to know who will bring justice against our many sins before a holy God. But guess what? Jesus stepped up. Jesus stepped into that leadership void. And he didn't hold his peace like Jacob. No, God's glory needed to be defended. He didn't ignore the need for justice. No, he stepped out of heaven and into our world. Why? To stand against our sin before God, even while he came to defend us from our own sinfulness. Jesus saw us as both the offending party and as the victim in the story. He came to judge our sin, which he did by paying the penalty for it on the cross. But he also stood as our defense as he didn't put us on that cross. But graciously gave himself for us. Friends, this is the gospel. God remains perfectly just. Our sins against him, which are many, are punished fully. But yet we who deserve that punishment upon ourselves, we're spared. We're not in that place. This is called penal substitution. Jesus was our divine substitute. He took action and stood in our place so that as someone in this world who is both the offending party, we are all sinners, and the offended party, great sin has been done against us, we are able to find hope this morning because we know that our sins are forgiven and we know that God is in the business of bringing justice against the sins of this world. And so, if you have been sinned against, you are able to rest in the fact that King Jesus will punish that sinful injustice done against you. It will not go unpaid. And so where does that leave us, church? Well, it should wonderfully leave us in awe. It should wonderfully leave us in utter amazement. It should leave us amazed and it should give us hope. Friend, be amazed this morning that God has not come against you in your sin. Even as Simeon and Levi came against the men of Shechem, God could have done that. And all that violence, he could have poured his wrath out upon you and your sin. But he didn't. He poured all of that violence and all of that sin and all of that wrath out on his son. Stand amazed by that. And have hope this morning. Have hope because the gospel demonstrates for us that our God is a God of justice. He does not allow sin and evil and injustice to go unpunished. All evil will ultimately come to an end. All injustice will ultimately be made right. If you have been sinned against, if your whole life has been poisoned by the sins of other people, you can find hope this morning by looking to Jesus and knowing the work that he has done for you will ultimately make all things new. In the end, 
He will redeem your brokenness. He will bring wholeness to your soul and to your body, and you will see the injustices of this world crushed under his feet. And finally, as we close, not only should we be a people of gospel hope, we should be a people who pursue godly justice. We should not be a passive people. We should first care for this world by giving them the greatest need or answer to their need, which is Jesus. We need to preach the gospel again and again and again, week after week after week. We need to never abandon this glorious message. Those that are hurting, those who are oppressed, those who have been sinned against, their greatest need is not their situation, though that's severe. Their greatest need is to find hope in Jesus. And so we should preach the gospel faithfully, which points them to an eternity where all wrongs will be made right. The pursuit of justice, the pursuit of justice that is not tied very closely to the gospel of Jesus Christ is ultimately no pursuit of justice at all. It's a fool's errand. And then finally, and I wish I could give a whole message here, we should fight for justice however we can, wherever we see it needed. When we see sinful injustice, we should grieve and mourn and lament over it and the pain that it has caused. But we must not end with grief and mourn and lament. We must turn and whenever we can in a godly, biblical, gospel-centered way, we should pursue justice. We should find ways to care for the poor, to defend the defenseless, to advocate for those who do not have a voice for themselves, to fight for ethnic harmony. These things are good and right. And when done through the gospel, because they are a reflection of God himself, that is when they are done right. Our God, whose heart is for the poor and for the afflicted and for the forgotten. My friend, He is a God who sees. He is a God who defends. And He is a God who loves. And we can and we should follow in His steps. Let's pray.